happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. Hello and welcome to the debut episode of On and Five. I'm Anton Ryder. I'm here with uh, my man to my left, Mr. Ethan Bonin, and the man to my right, Mr. Austin Thomas. Yo. Hey, we just want to thank you for joining us on this pilot episode. We to the thousands of you that are here with uh, us. <laughs> the, uh, the countries that are listening to this are really enjoying the it. The board I'm is sure. lighting up. <laughs> They're all here. Oh man. So okay. So we want to talk about. Uh, we ourselves are three musicians in different stages of their career. I am a failed musician, I guess you could say. I think we could probably all put that into our bias here. <laughs> We're all failed. I'm still some trying, of, but I don't, yes. don't plan for it to work. Some of us are trying. Some of us are no longer trying. <laughs> Ethan, you're in the middle. <laughs> yeah, okay. Is that cool. what that is? Cool, cool. Uh, for this debut episode, we would like to talk to you about what is now known as the most dangerous band in the world. Uh, it's Guns N' Roses, Guns for you that Roses. don't know. This is a band that I grew up listening to, and I had no idea that, that it was this intense. This I'm is say like true rock and roll outlaws. Like, I... I'm not good at guitar, but this is the band that I started with learning guitar. Mm, yeah. Like, Sweet Child of Mine, that riff, that's what I started with. The, the, the stuff that they did is the amount of heroin and just <sighs> raw... Oh. Dogging too much. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'd say I'd say it's a fine line, and they walked it. Yep, they walked it. I think uh, they crossed it. Yeah, plenty of times. I mean, this this is a story of it's literally a story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They were the real deal, <laughs> to a T. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Yeah. So we're gonna start by introducing each of the members, and then we'll get into the story itself. So we're gonna start with the the man himself, Mr. Axel Rose. He was born February sixth, nineteen sixty two, as Bill. Bailey. That's what his name was. William Bailey. Not quite as cool. A little less. Uh, it rolls off the tongue a little less. He, he was born to a mother, Sharon Rose, and a father, William Rose. So he had his father's name. His father left when he was a baby, and then his mother remarried a Mr. L. Stephen Bailey, and his name was immediately changed to Bill Bailey. This so, helps me to think I'm just going to be the next Axl Rose. Yeah, you know, this story is not dissimilar to your story. I'd say that it's pretty similar. So L. Stephen Bailey was a Pentecostal preacher. He was a fire and brimstone preacher in his Lafayette, Indiana church. The people loved him. But at home was a completely different story. He Very would, much different. He would yeah. beat Axel and his brother, and then he would molest his sister. So crazy a priest molesting them. Yeah, I mean, surprisingly on brand. Yeah, probably not Catholic. <laughs> They're good ones. <laughs> They're fine. They're fine. He changed his name to Bill Bailey when he, when his mother got remarried, and then when he was a teenager. He was rummaging through his mother's desk drawer and found her high school diploma, which had her it had her married name of Rose. And so he didn't he didn't know that he had a father. He thought that L. Stephen Bailey was his father, mm-hmm. and so he found out that he actually had a real father, and L. Stephen Bailey was his stepfather. So he confronted his parents about this and found this all out. So he changed his name to W. Rose. He didn't go with the badass. William Rose. Yeah, that, no, that sounds pretty good. Just one letter is. Something to get away it's, with. It's a confident move. <laughs> yeah, he, he changed his name to W. Rose. Uh, he didn't want to go with the full William Rose because, in his words, he said, William Rose is an asshole. <laughs> so he decided to go with the W, just the simple W. 
he grew up knowing music through the church. He was very involved with the church since his father was the pastor there. And so he was always singing in the church. He was at the church minimum three times a week, more like eight Absolute times a minimum, week. Absolutely minimum, yeah. Yeah. So he, he also started to learn about rock and roll, but his father would not let him do anything. Yeah. He, his father literally at one point threw out their TV because they saw a commercial with a person in a bikini. Just the, the commercial had a person with a bikini. Axel was in the same room. And they got beat for it, and the TV was gone shortly after. And that is all their fault that they saw that. I get I mean, that. Just, I, yeah. I totally get what, that. Totally, yeah. Yeah. I don't What's think it, he was in the wrong there. What's the TV going to do? What's yeah. the TV going to do? They didn't know kids were watching. <laughs> That's what my dad was like. I understand. Yeah. Like, he used to give me these muscle fitness magazines, and, like, they had, like, partially naked women in them. And, like, if he caught me with these magazines he'd give me, he'd be like, no, you can't have this. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's totally your fault. It. Yeah, it's my fault. Yeah. So the TV was gone. On another instance, he was in the car with his with his father, and he was singing the song Mandy by Barry Manilow, and his father did not like that, so he got a swift beating for it. That was kind of the point where he said in his biography that that was kind of the point where he was like, if just singing along to this can get me smacked, what other power does this music have? And that's pretty profound to me. Yeah, yeah. So Very after, yeah. profound thought. After that... Uh, he, it, it, it's kind of speculated where he got it, but he got a little like FM radio, a little portable FM radio. So he would spend time under his blankets in his room late at night, listening to the radio and just listening to bands, you know, listen to Zeppelin, Queen, just, he could never get away with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And just hearing them play. And then, and then also playing in the church, he just, he couldn't believe what music was able to do. The crowds that he would draw and seeing seeing the people in the church go crazy for music and you know that was for obviously not for him but for God and then hearing these live concerts on the radio he just he absolutely could not believe it. So it did not take long for the music to completely change him from church boy to something totally different. Yeah, so he he quickly went from a shy little dweeb to um, a rebellious teenager. He was eventually kicked out of his house by his father because the reasoning is that he had too long of hair. So he couldn't live there anymore. Yeah. I was never kicked out, but couldn't have it touching my eyebrows, collar, or ears. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Threatened, huh, Austin? (laughs) Yeah. Once or twice. Austin now has his ears pierced. I mean, I got some stuff pierced. Yeah, he's got a couple (laughs) piercings. He's got a couple tattoos. And I got to tell you... It was a rough couple days when his parents found out about that, but everything is fine now. Everything's good now. Past my nips. It hasn't crawled south, right? (laughs) The piercings. So he got kicked out. He went and lived with his grandma where he met a bunch of friends. He just hung out at parks with his friends, and um, he tried to move to L.A. a couple times, but he never... He never made it. He always came back. Uh, he actually went out. One of the times he went out was with Shannon Hood, the future lead vocalist of uh, Blind Melon, before his untimely death. God, I love Blind Melon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was... Uh, so he hung out with him. Um, actually, bl- Shannon Hoon did plenty of things with Guns N' Roses over the... There over are some course. crazy paths crossing in this story that you, yeah. you never expect. Yeah, I think this is the perfect episode to start with because the amount of people that Guns N' Roses interacted with is, uh, it's insane. Yeah. And like the drummer's the same way. Just so many different 
paths that they cross with. Yeah, it's, even just the whole thing about Slash and the owner of the record company they would end up being signed to babysat him as a kid. <laughs> it's yeah. insane. Yeah, it's like, how, how do all these things happen? And that's, and Ethan, I want to go back to your point. So we all read a different book. I read Last of the Giants, the true Guns N' Roses story by Mick Wall. And I read... My Appetite for Destruction by Steven Adler, not to be confused with Chris Adler. I could not get that out of my head the whole time. Who is Chris Adler? Lamb of God. Their Man. drummer's <laughs> killing me every time. Huh, okay. Much I, better drummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his, his tenure with Guns N' Roses probably would have been slightly longer than Steven Adler's. <laughs> would have been different. <laughs> okay, and I read I read Watch You Bleed, The Saga of Guns N' Roses by Steven Davis. I mean, I, I love my... My book, from what I've heard, Austin loved his book. If I didn't give a single crap about Guns N' Roses, which I grew up on them, but if I had no idea about them, I would still be so interested. It's so well-written and so articulate and very in- engaging, so I recommend it. Yeah. My drummer, he I mean, he obviously had someone write it for him, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this, I mean, maybe he wrote it post-stroke. He probably wrote it post-stroke which and is... just sat with someone and talked to them Multiple times, yeah. the same sentence, obviously. Oh, yeah, really. Because that's how strokes work. So, Axel Rose, William W. Rose, eventually made his way to L.A. in December of 1982. He spent plenty of his time looking for the one and only Jeff Isbell, a.k.a. Izzy Stradlin. So let's get into Izzy a little bit. Izzy Stradlin, born Jeffrey Isbell on April 8, 1962, in Florida. He moved to Lafayette. Uh, shortly before starting school, he was described as effortlessly cool. This is something my book touched on a lot, just how he was the string bean in the in the leather pants and the just had exuded cool in every way. I think the coolness kind of comes back to bite him later oh, in the yeah. story. When you're so cool that everyone wants to do heroin with you, that's <laughs> yeah. a pretty big problem. Yeah, when you when you accidentally re- reboot the heroin problem in L.A. because of your coolness. <laughs> Even Steven said he had a heroin problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone would deny this. Yeah. <laughs> um, he loved Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones. Those are some of his uh, role models. So, I mean, while Axel had to live this super, you know, pent-up life, pretty much everybody else in the band got to just live, have a normal childhood. Yeah. They all had super screwed-up childhoods, but they all got to kind of have, like, a music-filled and, and, and a pretty decent childhood. Slash's mom was an actor, right? She was a uh, fashion designer. Mm-hmm. That's what it yeah, was. Yeah, she may have acted as well. Yeah. But, but we'll, we'll get to we'll go. Yeah, We're going to cover that. Yeah. Izzy originally played the drums before switching to guitar. He jammed with his drunk brother and his friends, and he called this his uh, first adrenaline rush. So he would go to this farmhouse, and everyone would just get loaded, and then he would he would play the guitar, and his friends would loved it. I wonder how that compares to heroin. Pretty similar, <laughs> I, guess, I assume. So he originally met Axel in the ninth grade. Izzy heard a loud crash and then saw a flash of red hair, followed by a herd of teachers chasing him. So this was after Axel kind of got his his rebellious streak. And they said he was just a crazy person, Axel was. He was kind of small, but he would, had that look in his eye that just nobody wanted to mess with him because he looked like a complete psychopath. <laughs> after trouble. Just yeah. Chasing it. And if you mm-hmm. and if you've seen anything with Axel Rose, you know exactly the look he's talking about. We are Damn. <laughs> I just want to put this out right now. We are in a PVC pipe blanket covered uh, room. 
I think that it sounds pretty good in here. Oh, we got an expensive setup in a very inexpensive situation. <laughs> I put down $30 for this, so that, like, that's it. <laughs> Great mics are going to pick up everything outside because we got no walls in here. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, and apparently uh, where we are recording is surrounded by the loudest cars that are around. Everything's a Hemi. Everything is a Hemi. There is a Ford Focus with a Hemi out there right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So after they, after Izzy had this initial, I guess, sighting of Axel, they met then, and then they had driver's ed together. So think about these, like, hard rock stars as 14-year-olds. Think about that. They were kids at one point. They were scared to drive vehicles. <laughs> You know, like we all were when we had took driver's ed, you know. Oh, yeah. So, um, so after Izzy and Axel met and they had their driver's ed together, Izzy was convinced that Axel would actually be the perfect front man in a band. Ax- Izzy had tried out a lot of bands and was just convinced that this dude would be the killer front That man. was a big thing a lot of people said. They could just notice right away that he had that confidence and that he just had something no one else had. Yeah. That's a big part of it, you know, just being able to get the attention, get him riled up. Yeah, he had it. Izzy moved to L.A. at the age of 19 in 1981. He changed his name from Jeff Isbell to Izzy Stradlin. Izzy being a play on his last name and Stradlin just being a sexual term because women were always straddling him. Straddling what? Him. Okay. Okay, Slash. So Slash was born Saul Hudson on July 23rd, 1965 in London, England. We've got a foreigner here. He moved to Lauren Canyon near L.A. as a child. He had the complete opposite childhood of Axel's. So Majorly different. <laughs> oh, my, it's insane. Axel's was full of literally being beaten for seeing a commercial. And Saul's was just full of music yeah. and happiness. And his, his parents, mom banging David Bowie. Oh, you know, the American dream. Yeah. They so the, These people from the motherland come over and they live the dream and that it just we proves all to want. You, yeah, it proves to you that... Any background, we can all we're all different. We all come from different backgrounds, and any of us can form a heroin addiction. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> he definitely had one. <laughs> oh, he he loved he loved petting the horse. He loved chasing that deer. <laughs> Riding the dragon. I've heard that one. His father, Tony Hudson. He he was a he was a kind of a graphic designer. He he did things like that. Uh, he actually designed the Joni Mitchell cover for the album Court and Spark. It's kind of an interesting nice little tidbit. Yeah, yeah a little abstract uh, art cover. And his mother, Ola Hudson, was a clothing designer. Uh, she also worked with Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell was close to the Hudson family. He, she also worked with Ringo Starr. David Bowie, and Carly Simon. Quite a repertoire. Hmm, you're so vain. Do you think she banged Ringo Starr? I don't think so. I don't think anybody's ever banged Ringo Starr. I don't think Richard (laughs) Starkey has banged Ringo Starr. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I hope that no one has banged Ringo Starr. That that is a man that needs to have his genes die with him. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) When he was a child, he also got to meet Diana Ross, John Lennon, Stevie Wonder... Bill Cosby, the good Bill Cosby, oh. pre 
pre-rape. Actually, probably current rape. Current, I mean, yeah. It was probably actually happening when he met him, but not when he met him. It was we probably, didn't. it happened before and then after he met him. And he also met uh, Seymour Castle, the actor from Rushmore and Life Aquatic. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, but that... I do know Life Aquatic, yeah. Yeah, Seymour Castle. Like... Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So Seymour Castle was the guy who actually gave Slash his nickname. So he said that Slash was always running around. Mm, he was always yep. zipping around like some lightning. So he looked like a Slash, and so he got the name Slash, and it stuck. It stuck for ever, I guess, it probably. I call him Saul. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. You're on first name basis, oh, huh? first going Saul. So his parents' marriage, marriage was crumbling. His dad found out, as Austin mentioned, that his mother had a short but intense relationship with David Bowie, which I assume every relationship with David Bowie I was ju- is Yeah, I was just going to say that. Nothing is not intense with that guy. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine that it was pretty good. Yeah. Hot, thin, thin, white, white dung. Go. <laughs> coated in coke. <laughs> Oh, my. That's a play on the Thin White Duke. Mm. That's a good one. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Wouldn't have got that. Yeah, thank you. For <laughs> I could tell you didn't know. Thank That's you. why I touched on it. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> After he found out about his parents' divorce, he actually found out about it while he was having a burger with his father. His, his father said, how do you like that burger? Your mom and I are breaking up. That's the way you want to find out. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on where the burger is from. Steven Adler. Born Mike Coletti on January 22nd, 1965 in Cleveland, Ohio, the mecca of rock music. That's where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, isn't it? Yes, it is. So it actually makes sense, yeah. Which, I don't know if he's in there or not, but if he's not, he should be. I'm going to take a guess. Probably not. Wow. (laughs) We should probably fact check that. We should probably fact check that. I'm going to say probably not. Can can I do that quick? Yeah, go for it. We'll wait. And then we keep it in. Yeah, if we're gonna he's keep, not. We're gonna keep all of this out in. the pause. <laughs> yeah. No, we're keeping all this in. Okay, oh, we're okay. keeping it all. Even if we're wrong. So Steven Adler was born Mike Coletti after his he was named Mike Coletti after his father, also named Mike Coletti, who was a wannabe gangster. How do you be a wannabe gangster? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I don't know. Aren't you a gangster if you wanna be? <laughs> I think it's just the clothes. He just wore the clothes. So he just had, like, the suits with, like, the extra big lapels. I think and his like, last name was just Coletti. When his father left, his mother and him moved to a town near L.A., and his mo- and his grandmother made him change his name to Stephen because of an... Ash- it's a Jewish tradition, right? Ash- yeah. Ashkenazi? There was a Jewish tradition that you can't be named after someone that's alive. Her parents made him... Like, would not name. let them yeah. live with them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And they also made her give up rights to him. He was technically... Her parents. Yeah, at yeah. one Gra- point. The, the, the grandmother Yeah, the grandparents were his, his guardians. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, at one point he had to actually go live with his grandparents mm-hmm. because he was acting out. Uh, he got his last name, so he changed his name from Coletti to Adler after his mother remarried a, I I'm, I'm assume he's a handsome man named Melvin Adler, which is a dorky-ass <laughs> name. That man had to be a dork. He yeah. got a wedgie or two in his life. <laughs> Justin. All right, let's hear it. They're oh, we got all in as Guns N' Roses 2012. Okay, so the original five made it in as Guns N' Roses. Yes, N they Roses. did. Oh, that makes me kind of happy. That's a cop out. <laughs> so I just felt bad for Steven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have been Matt Sorum. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, they put Matt Sorum in, too. Oh, did they? Oh, all right, good. good. Every they just, they just really did the umbrella. Yeah. Did the umbrella. <laughs> Great. So when he was at a skate park living with his grandparents... 
he had an accident and Slash helped him and they became inseparable. Steven wanted to play the guitar but actually was not any good at it. So Slash tried it out and he had a knack for it. So Steven actually gave his guitar and his amp to Slash. And Steven at some point later got to try out the drums. He played drums in high school and learned that he was good at that. That was the thing about Slash. Everyone said he was such a natural that he picked up the guitar and it just kind of flowed out of him. Yeah, it was said like he tried it and then within a week he was like playing songs. Yes. He was yeah. just, he was just writing like songs. Channeled it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's so natural. So Steven just gave him the guitar and then he tried out drums, was good at it. He so was the okay f- at it. Yeah. He was fine. <laughs> he was adequate. He was one album worthy of playing the drums. He was good enough to play 13, 12 songs. One great album. That's very one. good. And that's true. And yeah. his parts are very good on Yeah, the yeah. He does a good job. He loves the cowbell. So that brings us to our fifth person, Mr. Duff McKagan. Mm. Duff McKagan was born Michael Andrew McKagan on February 5th, 1964 in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Cannot be a rock star and keep your original name. Yeah, apparently it's impossible. <laughs> this is the band of nicknames. Austin, that's your cue. My name is Austin Thomas. Not very catchy. <laughs> <laughs> he will. You will. You are going to see the transformation from Austin Thomas to Scar. To Scar. <laughs> Crazily similar to Slash. <laughs> mm, yeah. Wow. Really. Really. Almost like I can't think on my. <laughs> so he was a punk kid by trade because Seattle is known for the birth of punk. I mm-hmm. mean, they are all punk. Top to bottom. That was his big moniker, the leather and all that. Yeah. yeah. He kind of came out pre-punk. Mm-hmm. He said that if he would have known that it was going to get so big, he would have never left. He would have never moved south. I say he probably didn't make a bad move. No, he did all right for himself. <laughs> Major record company. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Platinum album. Not too bad. His nickname came from his parents when he was a baby, and it stuck. So he, just, his parents just called him Duff, and he liked it, and that was it. Which, so, I mean, I could end up going, changing my name to Biff. Not no. as cool. No, no, no. We're going to not do that. <laughs> you know what you could pick? Yeah. Butch. Butch. Oh. Butch. <laughs> when he was a kid, his parents divorced. His mother actually walked in on his father uh, while he was cheating on her. As you do. And so they got a and divorce. Rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't, you would not be a rock and roller if you didn't have a tragic backstory. I think we can all agree on that. Oh, yeah. After his parents divorced, he got some pretty severe panic attacks, and he self-medicated just like Slash. I don't think he was having sex as early, but don't quote me on that, okay? I mean, Slash really got in there pretty quick. He really, he, he went from, he jumped into the deep end. He head first. before I had a pube. Well, he was also born in 1960, so. I, I just meant age-wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> But yeah, no, okay. (laughs) We get it. Duff joining the band. Duff actually picked out the bass simply because there were so many guitarists in the world that Duff wanted to stick out, so he chose bass, and he he nails it. He's an awesome bassist. So Duff McKagan was in an estimated 30 bands before finally landing on GNR, the most famous of which was actually a band called The Farts, which you can find on Spotify or any streaming app that you would like to listen to. Not unsimilar from the smell of this room. Mm, It is pretty stinky in here. The way that Duff kind of got his in is he actually met Slash after answering an ad for a basis. Slash put out an ad in a magazine, and Duff McKagan happened to answer it. So they met in a deli. Duff walks in with his floor-length trench coat with an anarchy sign on the back. and so sl- badass. 
<laughs> and Slash walks in in his, you know, denim jacket, his ripped up T-shirt, his sneakers, and then a posse of girls. So they are two different worlds. Just also pretty badass. Also badass, yeah. So Duff, the band that he actually originally tried out for was not Guns N' Roses. It was actually Road Crew. He listened to Road Crew and decided that it wasn't for him. So he and Slash shook hands and they went their ways. Duff had Slash's number in his pocket and thanked him for his time, basically. So Izzy met up with Duff sometime later on his own, completely independent, and they joined Hollywood Rose together. I think that's kind of like the funniest part about these origin stories is they just keep like coming in and out. Yeah. Like in and out. They constant. cross paths so many times. So yeah, and, and we are going to get into it right now because it's insane how how close together they get and you know, they come together, yeah. fall apart, come together. It takes them so long to get it right and I, I say get it right loosely because I don't know if any of this is right <laughs> until they're finally doing it. They assembled the bomb. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Basically a ticking time yeah. bomb. The story of Guns N' Roses begins in L.A., 1983. Axel has now moved to L.A. permanently and is looking to start a band. He is desperate to be in the band AXL with his friend Izzy. He eventually takes the name and adopts it for himself. Axel has been in a few bands, none of which have worked out. He wanted to start a band with Izzy, and Izzy wanted to start a band with a man named Tracy Guns, a local guitarist. Guns was busy, but he recommended his friend Chris Weber. These three guys created the band Rose, which eventually changed their name to Hollywood Rose. They recorded an album, but weren't really going anywhere. Izzy eventually quit to join another band called London, and Axel was being looked at by Tracy to join his new band, L.A. Guns, after the band fired their vocalist. While all this was happening, Tracy's high school classmates, Slash and Steven Adler, were in their own band, Road Crew. This band was going nowhere. Axel was close to joining Tracy, but instead reformed Hollywood Rose with Izzy. Slash and Steven heard that Tracy wanted to get a band going with Axel, who Tracy called the best singer in Hollywood. Slash and Steven wanted to see what all the hype was about, so they went to go see Hollywood Rose at the Troubadour, a popular venue in Hollywood. Shortly after, Steven and Izzy were introduced by a mutual friend. Axel then fired Chris Webber, and Steven convinced Izzy to let his friend, Slash, come to a Rose rehearsal. Slash played with them for a while, but later quit after an incident where Axel attacked a spectator at a show. Axel then left Hollywood Rose again and fully joined L.A. Guns and further angered Slash when he slept with his then-girlfriend at the time. Slash tried out for a then-unknown band called Poison, but was not offered the position for being too grungy. Izzy joined L.A. Guns, and Slash and Steven went back to Road crew. L.A. Guns was named Guns N' Roses because of Axel and Tracy's last name. And on March 26, 1985, Axel Rose, Izzy Stradlin, Tracy Guns, Ollie Bach, and Rob Gardner would play their first show with the new name at the Troubadour. Twelve people would see it. Later, Guns N' Roses would fire Ollie Bach and bring in their new acquaintance Duff McKagan. They would play regularly at venues in the L.A. area. He was a great fit for the group, but hated seeing them stay in Hollywood. He didn't want to be a big fish in a small pond. He wanted to be a big fish in a big pond. He convinced the group to go out on the road playing shows up the coast on the way to Seattle. The group was on board, but Tracy and Rob got cold feet 10 days before they were set to hit the road. That left a vacant guitar and drummer spot, and Duff knew just the guys. Slash and Steven were brought in, and the group rehearsed three times before trying out the new lineup at the Troubadour and hitting the road on what would become known as the Hell Tour. So I did that in roughly three minutes. And that is 30 pages worth of material. This is dense stuff. Dense <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. So, I mean, if you guys really want to 
really get the details of it. I think we do a pretty good job. You have to go read. There's these books. no way that we yeah. can cover all of this. We'd be doing a four part episode to begin with, and yeah. I didn't. I don't even want to do a two part. But there's no way that we cannot yeah. do. There's this. no way to do all this in 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 one episode. Yeah. It's it's impossible. We are gonna try to contain this to two, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. They left on the Hell Tour on June eighth, nineteen eighty five. They made it a whole one hundred miles before both the vans they had broke down. This was a very aptly named tour. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think it was actually named the Hell Tour in hindsight yeah, yeah. because of how terrible They had it was. to hitchhike the whole way to their first show, which they missed the first, like, three of them, I think. I think that's what it said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's some different accounts on that because I read that they missed all three or they missed shows going up, but then I also read that they made their first show just in the nick of time. Oh, really? So, yeah, I don't know what the real... Like, even Steven in my book that I read, he said that they switched cars three times on the way up. That's... Yeah, they had to ride in the back of an empty semi at one point. They rode with a couple of hippies that for a while. rock and roll. These guys lived the rock and roll lifestyle more than anybody else, and they lived it 100% of the time. They weren't... They hated Poison because Poison was this imitation Too band. glam, yeah. Yeah, and so these guys... I mean, these guys lived a dirty, gross lifestyle. <laughs> but they loved it. They had to leave both their vans behind with two friends. It took them 40 hours to get to Seattle, and they made it just in time to play at the Garden Gorilla in Seattle. The The venue didn't want to pay them because it was a pay-to-play, so Axel naturally decided to light up some paper towels and try to burn the place down. I don't know what else you'd do. Yeah, so I think that the, I think the venue was offering to pay them $200 at the beginning of this. but and then I th- they backtracked on it after. Yeah, I yeah. think they ended up getting paid like $30. Yeah. Like, they got paid so little, but they also got food and drinks. So, again, rock-style lifestyle. They were just fine with all. Anarchy. Burn it down when you don't get paid. <laughs> Who was more rational, Axel or the venue owners? <laughs> Who? Probably the venue owners. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard, hard question to answer, but mm. if I had to spitball, <laughs> tough yeah, one. If I had to put an answer on it, I would say probably the venue owners who didn't want to pay to have no one there to see them. (laughs) (laughs) So after they were done at the Garden Gorilla, they went to go hang out with a little band that Duff knew, a little band called Soundgarden. You know, just another notch in in their list of bands that just grew huge. Rest in peace, Chris Cornell. Rest in peace. (sighs) Gone too soon, man. Gone too soon. After they were done with their hell tour, they decided to head back to L.A. Closer than ever. They kind of saw this this tour as a a rite of passage. I mean, they, they said, we have lived it now. We are rock stars. We've been on a tour. We literally muscled our way through this entire thing. As much as it sounds like that was a complete shit show, which it was, I mean, but it... It brought them together enough to want to keep doing it, which yeah, is crazy. Absolutely, yeah. This thing brought them closer together than I think than a successful tour would. Yeah. I'm sure if Easily. it was a successful tour, they probably would have never wouldn't have blown up how they did. Yeah. Break. It was moment. literally their make or break moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're they're back in LA now, they get a ride back to LA. Their vans are still broken down. So the band is really falling into their groove at this point. They are playing shows around the area. Uh, when they first started they had to kind of play like early in the week and you know, it was a pay to play. So they had to you know, literally walk around the streets and just try to get people to buy tickets. But over time, they became so popular in the area that they kind of got moved back later and later in the week before eventually basically becoming the house band at like the Troubadour and other venues in the Still area. Still only being known in the area, but getting pretty big for the big area. Big in yeah. the area, yeah. Once they got back, Axel started kind of showing the leadership that he was going to do in the group. He started going on these long rants and going into deep stories about his past. So in his past, he had been seeing, I don't know if he'd seen a therapist, but he was talking about basically like 
getting molested and all this stuff and getting beaten and stuff. So immediately all his bandmates had to deal with him just going on these rants. Yeah. Which uh, I'm not I'm not, you know, talking bad about abuse or anything like that, but when you're just trying totally to support abuse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're just trying to shoot up heroin and drink a shitload you know, that's you not what you want to hear. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want this Debbie Downer bringing you down. You know, that's what therapy's for. But obviously, it worked for him because people kept coming. That's yeah, the subject and, matter and the, they needed. Yeah, and but. the yeah, the music that he wrote. I mean, hit people exactly where they needed to be hit. So they rented a twelve by twelve space, which would become known as the Hell House. They Aptly really liked known Hell House. They really liked the Hell theme. That's so edgy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so edgy. Yeah. This was a practice space that God, they lived I say in. That sarcastically, but it really was just a den of fucking shit and heroin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it was not they, they rented it for a practice space, but it was not meant to be lived in. And they did just that. Yeah. They they lived there full time. It had an aluminum roll up door. It had no plumbing, no kitchen. They basically just put a mattress in the middle and that was their house. They would use convenience stores to go to the bathroom. A lot of them slept in the parking lot of Tower Records they said. It's just yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were they were just literally struggling every day. Their shelter was a, a storage unit. Their food was whatever they could find, and their water was Jack Daniels. They also didn't care, though. They said they would scrape up dollars to get booze every night. That was all that they cared about was playing and drinking and, I mean, drugs eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They would do anything they could for money. They would throw these parties every weekend, and they would have, like, 500 kids show up. And this was like a, you know, like I said, it was a small area. It was a 12 by 12 storage shed behind a guitar center in an alley. Which ended up picking up a lot of police attention as as you could guess. <laughs> yeah, having five hundred kids there and, and they would they would sell booze to underage kids to make money. They would sell drugs. Izzy was like a small time drug lord because he was selling so much heroin. Yeah. Everybody wanted to do heroin because Izzy Stradlin was doing heroin and he was so seamlessly cool. And then the other thing they would do Pretty bad. They would wait for chicks to start banging dudes in their in their storage Hanging area. Hanging around with them, yeah. And then they would just steal money from their purse. Yep. Like they said that, like, you would open this door and there were just bodies laying in there. Just everything was going on in there all the time. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, it was like twenty four hours a day. They would that place was just full. But they somehow found time during all of this, which is amazing. They found time to practice, yeah. and they took practicing very seriously. I all mean, they, they cared about was music and sex and drugs. Axel was being hunted by the police during this time for an alleged rape of an underage girl, and they said that some was coming down against Slash as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had some tr- outstanding charges on them as well. The group just up and left their storage unit, and they went and squatted in their manager's place at the time, Miss Vicki Hamilton. And Vicki Hamilton gets the rawest deal, I think. Think I have ever read about. <laughs> oh my god, she yeah. It's I'm gonna say it's not fair what happened to her. That's putting it very lightly. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, what happened was she was kind of managing them at the time and putting all of her own money and time into it. And when all these charges happened with Axel and this rape allegation, which was not an allegation, it was very much true. They are not good people. Slash uh, called Vicky and asked her to basically harbor Axel, which turned into all of them staying in her one bedroom apartment. 
They trashed the place, ended up basically getting her evicted because of how badly they treated it, and then they just dropped her as their manager when they finally picked up traction. Yeah, yeah. like, as soon as they got Geffen Records, like, even Steven Adler was like, I don't really know what happened, yeah. but she just wasn't around anymore. She, like, in the book, you're like, I don't know what happened. Yeah, basically, the only person that talked to her about it after was Axel, and that was, his apology was basically saying, we just don't think you can cut it. She was the person that got them the deal. Yeah. I mean, she, she did everything everyone. For them. She was there when they walked into Geffen. Yeah, yeah. Axel got pissed because he couldn't find his contacts on the day they were supposed to get signed and Vicky and Slash looked for it and Axel bailed and they finally found his contacts in a pair of old jeans he was wearing and so they, then they had to find Axel so they look out the window and see Axel in this meditative yoga stance essentially sitting on the roof yeah <laughs> sitting on the roof of a building and they're like what the hell is he so when they go to get signed by Geffen Records they have to get Axel off a roof mm. Vicky is like let's She's wrangling these guys yeah. to get them to make it and then they make it and leave her in the dirt. And then they just ditch her. Yeah. Bunch of stray animals and just leave her behind. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was terrible. So one thing that Guns N' Roses did that really nobody else at the time was doing, all these glam rock bands, is they were also playing big venues. So they were playing the Troubadour, a huge venue in the area. So they were playing these big venues, but they would also just go and play like house shows. They yeah. would play, you know, they anything go, they could. Yeah, they were playing in backyards, they were playing in basements, basically anything they could. This was usually a punk band thing. So punk bands were known for playing these small shows, these small venues, but this big grunge punk rock band was doing this as well. By the end of 1985, they were one of the biggest bands in the LA area. They were still unknown worldwide, but in the LA area, they were they were really definitely making it. getting it out there. Yeah, yeah. So magazines were starting to notice. They were doing articles on them. They were magazines were calling them punk rock for people who like punk. They were calling them rock music for people who like rockers. They were calling them grunge for people who like grunge. This was in a time when bands were dressing up to dress up. They were teasing their hair because that's what they thought the people wanted. And these guys were literally living it. You know, Slash's top hat wasn't because he wanted to put on a show. It's just because he just stole a top hat one day and then and he decided that that's what he wanted to wear. And and Axel wearing these assless chaps and these thongs. <laughs> for the thong! Like, yeah, just, he just did it because he just wanted to do it. Yeah. it uh, they did everything for themselves first which is so unheard of at the time and it showed through their music and that's I mean that's why they became the biggest band in the world at this time everything I've ever learned from being in a band is you can't pretend mm-hmm. you just have to it is what it is you have to own it it yeah. can't be a gimmick yeah. it can't feel gimmicky it can't feel like you're doing it just to get attention you have to do it because it's real yeah and and these guys like they hated Poison because Poison they thought was the epitome of doing exactly this they thought that they did everything that they did just for show hated Poison and Poison hated them and I love that yeah. battle and there's a story I don't I don't remember if it was Izzy or Duff, but basically the whole band got their manager to steal his pair of pants and throw them away because he had been wearing the same pair of pants on stage, off stage for the entire tour, and they just smelled so bad. Yeah, can you imagine what these guys smelled like? They lived in a house that had no plumbing. They just drank and did drugs all the time. They banged whatever moved. And I, I imagine I can't imagine that they cut out 20 minutes a day to shower. 
You know, oh, I can't no, imagine no that way. they brush their teeth every. You know, that's not a bell curve. That doesn't get better at some point. <laughs> that just continuously just get gets in. worse. <laughs> like, think about three days without showering. Yes. What's that feel like? Yeah, stink we are, on stink on stink. I think we all showered today, right? And it smells very bad in here. We all showered, and yeah, it smells terrible in here. We are in a five by seven room covered in blankets. They lived in a twelve by twelve space, and they did more heroin than I uh, than I think Booze we will all ever do in our lives. I, yeah, I don't know what they will ever do in our lives. I haven't done any heroin, so I would say probably you're right. Yeah, so even if we start now, I think they are still going to beat us. Yeah, even at that point in their lives. Like, I know I've smelt meth at least once, and it's got an awful smell. So I imagine that heroin is just as Yeah, bad. we're going to say they're equal. We we live in Iowa. Iowa, I think, is the meth capital of the A lot of, of meth, world. oh yeah. But we are pretty straight-laced dudes, and... So we don't know what it smells like. I imagine it smells bad, and I imagine they did a shitload of it. <laughs> I just, I, I can't imagine what this smelled like. And I can't imagine what meeting them would be like. Oh, yeah. You know? So they were one of the biggest bands in L.A. by the end of 1985. Magazines everywhere were starting to notice. Well, everywhere in the L.A. area. Yeah. They were still relatively known outside the L.A. area, which is crazy to think about because they were so huge in that area. I mean, not signed, not like... Not anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Music Connection, one of the big magazines in the area, they put Guns N' Roses on their cover even though they weren't signed, which is unheard of. That was the first time they did it in their 25-year history. But by the time the magazine would come out on shelves, they were already signed. They were signed by Geffen Records. After a long, like, so many different record companies were looking at them, but... Steve had talked about how they would actually take record companies and make them take them out to dinner... Like wine, wine and dine them. Yeah. yeah, and they would just yeah. get as much. They run up huge tabs on them <laughs> just for the fun of running up huge tabs on these record companies. Yeah, they would do it just to do it, just yeah. to see if the record company could with handle no it. With no intention of it. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. absolutely no intention to ever sign. And they would just let these record companies spend all this money on them and then tell them no. Yeah, just just no. We and don't, like we don't the think same, we want Like you. with Chrysalis Records, who they almost signed with before going with Geffen, <laughs> they, they met with... Uh, one of their execs, Susan Collins, which Tony and I looked up. Not a looker. <laughs> I, do, I do not think that was the same Susan Collins I worked I don't for. know. But, uh, if it was, I'm not sure I'd want to see it. What yeah, it? So Axel basically said, if you run down the strip naked, we'll sign with you. And, and then they ended up going with Geffen. But this was at the same time where Geffen was looking at them, and they basically told Geffen, if you guys give us a check... For $75,000 by 6 p.m. Friday, we'll sign with you. But if Susan Collins runs down the strip naked by 6 p.m., we'll go with them. Yeah, you guys get us a check. And then Geffen was like, all right, we will get you that check. And then they said, all right, but here's our counteroffer. Susan Collins is going to run down the strip naked. If she if she does, we're going to go with them. Yeah. <laughs> and so they put these record companies just, into a rat yeah, race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, Susan, so Collins, power. Susan Collins ended up not doing it. Obviously. Uh, I'm going to say she blew it. <laughs> oh, I think we t- can yeah, all yeah. agree on that, right? I'm sure it's a big regret Crystal, of life. Have you guys ever heard of Chrysalis Records? I'm yes, guessing. I have. Oh, I haven't, and I know why I haven't. Sorry, yeah. not Chrysalis Records. Band called Chrysalis. Oh, okay, Different. yeah, nah. yeah. I'm, I don't know what's going on with Chrysalis Records now, but Susan I, Collins I, blew it for them. They blew. Yeah, that was probably the biggest mistake in their whole career. She should have just got her boobs out. <laughs> I'm sitting here in my underwear, <laughs> recording a podcast. <laughs> 
Obviously, she made the wrong decision. <laughs> David Geffen, the founder of Geffen Records, uh, actually, as Austin alluded to earlier, actually, mm-hmm. he watched Slash as a kid and then grew up to be this this big record mogul and uh, signed all these huge, you know, these big bands, whatever. They got Guns N' Roses, these, this up-and-coming band... They weren't just being looked at by Chrysalis. They were being looked at by, like... Capital, Atlantic, Warner Brothers. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. They were being looked at by big record companies <clears throat> who were offering more money, more perks, everything like that. But Geffen was the only record company that offered them the one thing they wanted, and that was total creative control. Yep. That's all that they wanted. They wanted to be able to be themselves, and they didn't want to have to sell out to everyone else. So Geffen Records offered that to them. They offered them that 75000 and that's what they took. On March 26, 1986, the one-year anniversary of Guns N' Roses' first show at the Troubadour with, you know, Ollie Bach and Rob Gardner, they started talks with Geffen Records one year after they did their first show. That's crazy. A little story about, like, uh, so their A&R rep, Tom Zutat, I believe. I'm probably saying that wrong. And Zutat. I'm, you got to put the, put the emphasis on the zoo. Zutat. Yeah. But uh, that he watched them, and there was a bunch of A&R guys for other companies there. And uh, at the end of the set, he looked at a bunch of them, and he was like, these guys suck. They'll never get signed. And he knew at that point that he was going to sign them. Yeah, he basically pushed other people away yeah. so that he could sign them personally. The biggest thing about Geffen Records is they would always do this, like, uh, illusion thing with other record companies. They would, like, do these weird moves with bands, like... Just anything unorthodox to try to get more attention to the band that they had signed, just to get some attention to yeah. them. And they would obviously did the same thing even before they actually signed them. Yeah, and after they signed them, other record companies would want this straight lace, top of the line, like show your parents band. And Geffen Records actually pushed the party boy rock star lifestyle that Guns N' Roses. But at lived. the same time, it almost ruined Tom's career because they couldn't find a manager for him. They were almost unmanageable for a while. So they finally found a manager in. Alan Niven, who basically had to be convinced he should manage the band. He was a last-ditch effort because everyone else that was looked at to manage Guns N' Roses couldn't do it. Even Aerosmith's manager, he was kind of interested for a while, but he was a little scared of their their party lifestyle because everyone in Aerosmith was getting clean at the time. Right, basically. And there's this big story, yeah, about the whole thing. They took him out, ran up a tab, and he was kind of interested, and they went back to his, was it an apartment? Or it was house? like his hotel yeah. At the time, because he got, he flew out to L.A. to to check out Guns N' Roses to see if he wanted to manage them, and so Guns N' Roses basically run up this guy's tab, which it, they ran it up to four hundred and fifty dollars in nineteen eighty six money, which is about a thousand dollars in today's mm. money. I mean, that's an insane amount of money for oh, yeah. five people because because the the manager of Aerosmith, he was also clean, so it was mm-hmm. just these five guys, two hundred dollars a person. I can't imagine spending two hundred dollars. Per person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so they went back to, to his hotel room, and they stayed up until the break of dawn, just drinking yep. on his dime. And his thing was like, I can't manage someone who's so party heavy. And he like went into his bathroom, saw blood on the ceiling, realized they were mainlining heroin. Yeah, literally, <laughs> Izzy spent the night in his bathroom just shooting up heroin and he went in and it looked like a scene from Saw blood covered so he called Joe Perry the guitarist and basically said I think these guys are mainlining and Joe Perry said are you sure you want to manage these guys and the manager said, no, I don't. Yeah, Tom Zutat had to search for a... Well, and it came down to Niven, who Tom was friends with. They had worked together quite a bit. They uh, Niven helped Zutat sign Motley Crue, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And so a big thing that I thought was funny is Tom came to Niven's house and Niven made them chicken baked in LSD. (laughs) And uh, they spent a whole weekend together and basically Tom kind of broke down and begged Niven to manage them because the president of Geffen Records basically told Tom, if you don't find a manager, I'm going to drop these guys before this album even comes out. And so Tom was kind of on the end of his rope. Tom and David Geffen, they both had so much faith in this band. They basically saw the future before it happened. They were like... And no one else did. Yeah, these guys are going to be the biggest band in the world. Just imagine, like, being a manager and, like, looking at these group of five guys and be like, all right, uh, I need these guys to behave. Like, imagine trying to do that. Well, and that was the thing. When Niven agreed to manage them, the president of Geffen was like, you've got three months to make it look like these guys are going to be making progress, and if not, we're going to drop them without even releasing an album. In 1986, August of 1986, Geffen decided to put them in the studio and start Appetite for Destruction. A long process. (laughs) Yeah. These guys were going crazy outside the studio, but in the studio every day, these guys were musicians first. Mm -hmm. They, if they were to put everything aside to, to record, they would basically just have a bottle of Jack Daniels, which is really mild for the band. Yeah. And that's a bottle of person, at least for Slash. He said he was drinking a bottle while they recorded by himself. Yeah. And like Steven, even himself, he needed these things because he would get the shake so bad. He would get so nervous mm. without it. Like he absolutely needed these drugs to keep him steady. Yeah. Otherwise he wouldn't perform. On top of trying to look for a manager who they eventually found in Niven, they were looking for someone to record their album because nobody wanted to be stuck in their studio with these five drunken drug addicts for a year. Mm -hmm. They eventually found a guy by the name of Mike Klink. He was known for recording Metallica, Jefferson Starship, Heart, and Eddie Money. He was a no-nonsense guy. He kept the band at arm's length. He basically didn't get too close with these guys. He put his music first. He didn't want to deal with these guys, and it shows through the album. These guys worked hard. He was working 16-hour days. Axel would come in in the morning to record his vocals, and then Slash would come in at night to record his guitar parts. Axel, when he was in the studio, the rest of the artists didn't want to be around him at all because he would do every take one line at a time just over and over again it's it's super repetitive and they just couldn't be around him when he was in the studio because they couldn't deal with it just how many takes he would take yeah they were incredibly anal about everything they wanted everything to be absolutely perfect people have since tried to completely mimic the tone that Slash had while recording like they've tried to look up the dimensions of the studio exactly what he recorded and it's like no one can match it. And you mentioned that when Slash recorded the album, he didn't have like an authentic Les Paul. He had lost all of his instruments because of his drug use, and so it took Niven, their manager, to buy him the the signature flame top Les Paul, but it was a replica made by uh, Jim Foote from Redondo Beach, who was like a custom guitar maker. And yeah, so this replica Les Paul that he ended up recording everything with. It was like his signature because he had no instruments because he sold them all for drugs. Just an unmatchable sound. It could never be recreated. The band practiced twice a day and tried to stay off drugs as much as they could. They didn't, outside the studio. Inside the studio, like we said, they were just drinking Jack. They were keeping it mellow. Outside, they were trying to stay off as much as they could. It didn't go very well. Slash was found OD'd in the street. He was blue in the face. 
he was revived, but rumors after that started that one of the members had OD'd and died, and so people were starting to get worried about it. All the members were going crazy. Izzy, Axel, and Steven were mainlining heroin very regularly. There was one point Wait, where... was Axel? Axel was, was, yeah. Oh. At this time, Axel was. At, at one point, Aaron Everly, his girlfriend at the time, came, and he basically said, I'm so excited to get this album done because I just want to sit in my bedroom and do heroin for weeks. <laughs> and Axel was doing it less than Izzy and Steven. Izzy and Steven were hitting it hard. Izzy was he eventually still- stopped altogether, didn't he? He, he got pretty much completely yeah. clean, yeah, when he realized that he was a band member first, mm-hmm. and that was arguably worse than him doing heroin. Yeah. But Izzy, on the other hand, was starting his drug empire. I mean, literally, the heroin epidemic in, in L.A. was ramping back up. It had kind of died down, but it was ramping back up because Izzy Stradlin was doing heroin, and everyone wanted to be like Izzy Stradlin. <laughs> like we said earlier, he was so effortlessly cool. He was so suave that he was doing heroin, so Everyone said, I need to do He was selling it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, Duff McKagan was drinking something like a gallon of vodka during this time (laughs) and doing an eighth of an ounce of cocaine, which I imagine is a lot. Slash was, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Slash was drinking ton of Jack every day. So much to the point where he had to be propped up during photo shoots just because he couldn't stand. He was so drunk. If you look at photo shoots during that time, he's like sitting on road cases and looking very deep. He's just... just Blacked out. Yeah, yeah. He, he, That's he's, the thing we were talking about earlier. Like, think of the drunkest you've ever been and then think about trying to, like, perform yeah. or re- record well, or... I couldn't do it. <laughs> and think about the drunkest you've ever been and then think about how much it took you to get there. We're all feeling a good buzz right now. We've had, what, like anywhere between three and five yeah. beers. <laughs> he drank... He drank a handle of Jack every day in the studio. I can remember the most drunk I've ever been. Me and my wife, Callie, were at a house party at a house that I used to live in with some of my old roommates down in Oklahoma. And me and one other guy started taking pulls off a bottle of Kraken, which is... Mm. Spiced rum. Yeah, spiced rum. There you go. Spiced rum. And we we finished the whole bottle. And I remember just Callie having to cart me down the the street. Oh, yeah. Like, I had my arm around Callie. And I was being drugged down the street just doing, like, And then think about trying to play a show like that. No, exactly. (laughs) Literally play in front of thousands of people. I can't imagine. Yeah. Like, Slash, Steven, and Izzy would just do that daily. I guess Duff too. Duff was drinking a gallon of vodka every day. Geffen Records loved their party boy image and they actually wanted to heighten this image that they had of this party boy rock star lifestyle. Whether this was true or not, whether Duff was drinking a gallon of vodka every day, Geffen was putting this out that he was doing it. They wanted the world to think that Duff was doing this every day. Geffen Records was basically destroying these people's lives. (laughs) But at the same time, they were also super worried about the record. Geffen didn't think that all the members of Guns N' Roses were going to make it to the debut of this album. They thought someone was going to die mm-hmm. before the end of this. And they had put up $375,000 for this record, which is crazy for a debut record from an unknown band. They so eventually had a sense of people to rehab, didn't they? Like Slash and Izzy. Slash and yeah. Izzy, yeah. Went to rehab. Geffen Records had to send Zutat in to go 
basically threaten them and say, if you guys don't clean up your act, we're going to just drop you and we are going to stop the record. We're going to stop everything. And it worked well enough for them to finish the record. They were basically just yo-yoing them. Just exactly. out, in, out, in, yeah. out, in. Like, we want you guys to be crazy on our time. Yeah, yeah. So, during the time that they were recording this album, they were also playing live shows. They played a show at a skate park in L.A. for roughly 5,000 kids. They had played about four songs. When Axel had started on one of his rants, essentially, that the police were out to get him. And the kids at the show basically took this as an invitation and they started rioting at the show they started throwing oil drums at the police officers at the venue and they eventually broke down the security barriers and climbed on the stage where the band was guns and roses tried to stop this but they were unsuccessful and the the show had to be completely stopped in the middle. I gotta of wonder it. how hard they tried, but <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that they loved it. I imagine they loved the attention of inciting a riot. Yeah, like if I was yeah. at a show and I somehow got a whole crowd of five thousand people <laughs> to just go nuts, I would eat that shit up. The whole show was canceled, and it took place four hours to calm everyone down and get to the point where they could stop the show peacefully. After that, a lot of places were canceling shows with Guns and Roses because they saw this one riot as a common thing that was going to happen. Yeah. So. They saw 5,000 kids start a riot and they were scared it was going to happen at the end. Yeah, it would be a regular exactly. thing, yeah. They played on Halloween with Red Hot Chili Peppers. They opened for Red Hot Chili Peppers and that was the last time they played for four months. The studio decides to release an EP, an acoustic EP, which they called Live Blank Like a Suicide. It was released under a faux record company labeled Uzi Suicide, kind of going with that suicidal tendency that that the band was seen under because nobody thought they were going to live to see the the release of their actual debut album this album that they released they released 10,000 copies of it and it was a hit instantly this acoustic four track album that they did if you look it up nowadays I went to Discogs and it sells for a about $200 a record so I mean it's it's a collector's item the band had mixed reactions on this Slash loved it. He said that it was dedicated to, quote, our friends for support on the streets and on the stage. He really enjoyed it. Axel hated it. He said it was, quote, a piece of shit compared to the album that was coming out, referring to Appetite, Appetite for Destruction. He hated the fact that... It was not live. It, it, was, it was not a live album. It was entirely recorded was in a studio, be, and they it, took samplings from live Texas albums and put it into this album to make it sound like it was actually live, but it wasn't. Yeah, Axel hated that. Which I I agree. It's yeah, pretty and, bullshit. And, 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 and it's phony. Of, and a lot of people that heard this record thought that this was the only true Guns N' Roses album. They thought that they thought that even Appetite for Destruction, the band was selling out. And Steven said that he had found out from the person producing this album that a handful of albums that are supposed to be live aren't actually live albums. He talked about Peter Frampton's live oh, yeah. album. Sure. But he like talked a little like, do yeah. you, you, you. <laughs> Exactly. And a lot of people, when live shit like uh, Suicide was put out, a lot of people thought that this was the album, and they had feared that the band had either broken up or Slash had died of a heroin overdose or that one of them had gotten AIDS, something like that. But in reality, they were just taking their time. They were were hitting slow moves. 
they were hiding out in the studio, taking their time. Because Appetite was a process. It took them like a very long time to get this done and out. Geffen Records was also nervous of them taking so long. They even said, this is unknown whether this is David Geffen of Geffen Records or someone else, but they said, quote, record everything that they do. Rehearsals, sound checks, concerts. Record that now because this band is going to be incredibly popular and they're going to be incredibly short-lived. One of them is going to OD before all this is over. And this is their bosses talking about this. Yeah. They thought somebody was going to die during this time. They almost guaranteed it. The yeah. way they poured money into it, they wanted everything they could get out of them. After Zutat went and talked to them and told them, you guys have to clean up your act, Slash and Izzy went to rehab, but Slash was living with the friend of the band at the time and his best friend, Todd Crew, who was openly doing heroin and so it's kind of questionable whether or not slash was clean during this time or what ethan you could talk about whether the band as a whole had debated whether or not they should have adler play on the album or not and i think that a lot of the time they kept adler in the dark because the he has not discussed in his book that he had heard anything about them replacing during the recording process okay Mine said so many times that his playing was questionable even sober. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't find anyone better than him, so they had... And he so, put in his time. Yeah. yeah, so Adler played on the album, but I'm sure it was somewhat hesitantly from the rest of the group. I think it was almost like a pity gift. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It was just like, all right, you can you can play on the album. You've been okay. here... Yeah, I mean, what really panned out for him. During the negotiation process of Appetite for Destruction, Stephen had talked about how Axel at one point wanted more of a cut than everyone else. And Stephen decided to step up and say, all right, I'll give you 5% of my cut. He was expecting everyone else to just decide to give 5% to Axel also. So it ended up 25% Axel, 15%. Yes, Steven, uh, yeah. Steven, to make Axel look like an asshole in front of everyone, but he said that everyone else just looked down at their feet and didn't say anything. Which is so funny because Axel basically told the exact opposite, where Axel had to be convinced by Geffen Records to give part of his proceeds to Steven because Steven was threatening to sue the record company and delay the record being released and it's estimated that Axel doing this cost him like a million and a half dollars by 1991 which is when the Use Your Illusion albums came out. Despite conflicting stories or anything like that, the album was coming along pretty well. Their ballads like November Rain or I think even Patience during this Patience time. Patience was actually on that next, they put out like a deluxe album of Appetite after the fact. Yeah. And Patience ended up being on it. Guns wanted to put out these ballads, but Zutat said you shouldn't put out these slower, more ballady songs because your debut album should be fast and it should be hard. Despite their best efforts to put out these punk rock, rock songs that they wanted to put out, they still put out one ballad that, I mean, still lives on today as one of the ballads that... This is a song that made the band for me. Like, if I had never heard this song, I would have never never listened to Guns N' Roses. Of course being Sweet Child of Mine. Sweet Child of Mine. This song kind of almost started out as a joke. So Slash wrote the traditional guitar riff, which Austin will sing to you now. 
Which, if you listen to our intro, actually has a lot of the same ballad as a sped up uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which mm. I never knew before until I was. I would a, not have made that connection editing the either. intro. Slash actually wrote that as uh, not a joke, but just basically like a warm up for himself, and he wrote it as a as a circus. Yeah, he called it a circus. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just a joke. circus tune. Mike Clink recorded that lick just on a whim. And Axel heard it and fell in love with it. He thought of a poem that he wrote for his then-girlfriend, Erin Everly, at the time. Well, one big thing is they said it was, like, super heartfelt and intimate, which was not something typical for Axel to do, yeah. You know, she's got a smile, and it seems to me, reminds me in childhood memories, that's the thing that gets me by. Pray for the thunder and the rain to quietly pass me by, thinking of his shitty childhood and how this girl gets him through it. Gets him through it, exactly. And it was it was really one of the only positive songs they put out, because if you listen to most of their songs, they're pretty negative. It's kind of like an angsty album overall. Oh, yeah. But then there's just one ballad on there. It's literally destruction in an album. It makes no sense with the rest of the album. It just doesn't fit in. It ended up selling as much as the album. That one single made the band. Welcome to the Jungle was their first single, but Sweet Child of Mine was the single that put them on the charts. Yeah. It's just a song that hits home with people so well. Yeah. He this said was... it was going to be a hit and no one else really thought it was. And then when it ended up taking off the way it did, the thing I read was that it fueled his ego so much. Like he knew at that mm-hmm. point he was never going to let someone tell him he couldn't do something or that something he wrote was not going to be successful. Some other songs that the band had wrote. My Michelle. I had not really heard My Michelle before we started to do this podcast. When I heard that, that's that's a great song. Mm. And that song was more of a ballad than people realize. I mean, he wrote that for his teenage girlfriend, Michelle, at the time, and she loved the song because it was a ballad towards her. She had said when they were listening to music and when they were teenagers that she wanted a song written about her. And so he wrote this song about her, and he drug her through the mud in the song he called her a drug addicted teen prostitute from a broken home his bandmates thought that it was too harsh it was too rough that she wouldn't like it but he ended up calling her and saying are these lyrics okay and she loved, loved the it, song yeah. yeah she loved the song and my michelle made it on the album some other songs that the group wrote included mr brownstone which was written about heroin by a drug fueled slash and izzy it was kind of about their struggle with it and how it affected them but it kind of transformed from their experience with it to Axel singing it, and it's kind of like an ominous warning about the usage of it. Because at this point, Axel was not using heroin. He was yeah. pretty much against it. And then when the crowd received it, they almost flipped it, and they saw it as a ballad towards using drugs. Yeah. At one point, Axel had to say on stage, don't do drugs, Yeah, essentially. <laughs> he mean, had to say, this song is a warning. I mean, it's song- not meant to glorify the drug use. It's meant to warn you about what we're doing yeah and it's crazy because i feel like listening to it without knowing anything it does sound like oh this is awesome we're partying we're having a good time but then when you know that he's against it it does seem kind of ominous like yeah yeah. steven says that when they were writing the lyrics a lot of what axel wrote he would do by himself so a lot of what they heard in the studio was almost new to them so, Welcome to the Jungle, it was about Axel's time in L.A. It was about his, his struggle with coming to the jungle that was this new city. Probably the most famous line in the song came from... You know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby! You gonna die! Yeah. 
yeah. So that came from a trip that Axel took to New York, actually, when he was younger. Yeah. He stepped off the bus, and this old man just happened to come up to him and said, You know where you are? <laughs> you in the, the jungle, baby. baby. You're going to die. die. That's so awesome. Yeah, this old man just came up to him, scared the shit out of him because of this line. I don't know how big Lafayette is. Basically, where you are a drop in an ocean of people. It's it's you are gonna die. And no one's gonna even pay attention that you're dead. <laughs> and another song that they wrote. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really matter what it's about. Everyone knows one thing about this song, and that's the fact that actual sex was recorded Rocket Queen you we're talking about Rocket Queen of course all the sex that you hear in it I mean you hear like the moans of a woman during it it's all real yeah Axl Rose had sex with multiple women multiple times during the recording of this song. One of the women that he had sex with was actually Steven Adler's girlfriend during this time. So Steven Adler is sitting in the booth just listening to Axl Rose. Rail his girlfriend. Not knowing it was his girlfriend at this time. So he just, all once he heard in the booth, come on, Adriana, stop faking it. Make it real. And Adriana happened to be his girlfriend at the time. So Steven Adler understandably got pretty upset from this. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, what are you gonna do? You're gonna you're gonna just have to deal with it because it's take the millions you make from this record and move on. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I don't know if her take made it, but he had sex with multiple women. And he knew when he heard Rocket Queen, it sounded like porn, and so he was like, Well, I gotta put porn in it. Yeah, he said it needed something extra to push it over. So that just happened to be real banging apparently yeah real sex so he made Mike Clink put these microphones on the ground mm-hmm. and, and he, Mike Clink wouldn't have anything to do with it he said he would press record and then leave one of the women that Axel would have sex with was going to have sex with the band's lawyer at the time who was Jeff Goldstein uh, yeah, yeah. Who was going to play harmonica on Night Train. He was super stoked about it. The band invited him to New York to re-record his parts. He had recorded it in L.A. This girl came in and started giving him a lap dance and stripped down naked. They were grinding and they were getting real sexual. And then right before Jeff Goldstein had sex with her, Axel came in and basically said, All right, you got to get out. I'm going to have sex with this woman. And so Jeff Goldstein left angry and horny and Axel ended up having sex and Jeff Goldstein heard it all and uh, he was understandably upset at the time. Alright, I want you to stop and just think about you're in the studio and you decide that you're gonna get women in and grind on people to help you record your album. That's insane to me. <laughs> they like think of these women like products. Yeah. Less like people and they're crazy. like I'm Is just it- gonna bring in these women and we're gonna use them First sound. Yeah. N- nothing else. We're just gonna put this on the on this album. Adriana, gonna... stop faking it. Stuff that, that doesn't. I mean, at least that I know doesn't happen any. But that, no. I, I can't think of any album <laughs> yeah. that's talking about a song that's not on Spotify or anything like that. It's too. It's easy. so easy. It's so easy. And it, that's that whole song is just about how easy it was for the group to just bang chicks. Yeah. 
And that's what they did. Yeah. They and just, they said they'd and they just would, pass him around when one was done. Yeah. yeah. Izzy and Slash were double teaming a chick. At that point, they were like, well, we should probably worry about AIDS and stuff like that because we could get AIDS from this girl and we are sharing this woman and stuff. And everything was just so relaxed for him this whole time. Yep. So they had a rough cut of everything and they ended up relocating to Manhattan to mix and master the album. So the album was done in mid-May and it was due for a May release but the cover art that they had chosen the band had chosen to put out I'm not sure if you guys have seen the album art that they had originally put out but it was much more violent pretty graphic yeah yeah if you've seen it, you wouldn't forget it. Yeah, Everyone so- knows the classic cross with the five skulls, every member represented in a skull with the banners of the band and the album underneath. But this is totally different. This is like a robot with a, a girl half naked with scratches on her, clearly been taken advantage of. So this- and this crazy demon, it's just bizarre. This was a painting done in the mid-60s by an artist named Robert Williams, and it was of a battered girl with her breast out and her panties at her knees, a cut on her breast, attacked by a robot with a light bulb for a head and camera lenses for eyes. A third figure, a four-armed, knife-toothed figure with skull monsters coming out of its body, is jumping over the fence to attack the robot. It ended up being a slip in the cover that everyone knows, but people don't know that it was the original art. A lot of places wouldn't even put this record on the shelf because it was too violent, it was too sexual. I mean, I listened this- to Guns N' Roses so much as a kid, and I didn't even know about this till we started looking into this, to be honest. Yeah, the album was released to come out in May, and it was pushed back to July because Geffen Records was talking about if this cover could be put out yeah it was eventually approved that it would be released with this album cover Mm -hmm. and the biggest thing for geffen when they put out this original artwork is they were putting it out for the shock factor because this was after the whole parental advisory thing yeah yeah yeah. this is the time where parental advisory was not a thing on albums and right after that became a thing and if you look on discogs you can still find albums for sale with the original artwork and i mean it's high dollar stuff during this time during may and june geffen and Zootot decided they should do a European tour. Their type of music, this kind of grunge rock, was a little bit more popular in Europe at the time, and so Zootot booked a European tour. So at this time, when they had Live Like a Suicide, Niven sold all 10,000 copies of that to an independent distributor, and he got $42,000 for that, which funded that European tour. He basically told the president of Geffen Records, Eddie Rosenblatt, that he would only give him this check if they used it to send the band to Europe. In the meantime, between them recording and them going to Europe, Axel decided that he was going to get another tattoo to basically look tougher on the European tour. So the tattoo he decided to get was a tattoo on his right forearm of a cross, and on the cross was the five members of Guns N' Roses, each on one of the points of the cross, with Axel in the middle, each of the members depicted as a skull. More badass than you can ever freaking imagine. Oh, God, it was so cool. In the time between them recording and them going to Europe, Axel got in a fight with the police and was hospitalized. He was fine, but he couldn't get the song Knocking on Heaven's Door by Bob Dylan out of his head. 
he had no idea why this song was in his head or what he should do with it. He didn't want to cover it because he thought that it was overplayed from other bands, but Slash convinced him that it should be done. And uh, when they decided to do this cover, they never ran it by Steven. They actually just started playing it without ever running it by him, so he never practiced it. When Steven heard the song, he didn't know that it was a cover. He didn't know that it was a Bob Dylan song. He just thought that it was an original song written by the band. Of- it's almost... Honestly, more recognizable by Guns N' Roses, I feel like. Yeah, like, honestly. Yeah. yeah, like, I just thinking of that song, I cannot think of Bob. I, I mean, I'm not I only a huge... hear Axel's voice when I think of it. So the band, along with photographer Robert John, as well as the friend of the band and roadie, Todd Crew, they left for Europe on June 15th. And one thing to note is that everyone other than the band paid for this trip on the tour by themselves. I mean, they, they, they self-funded this tour. Mm-hmm. So the band arrived in Europe on June 15th. They were jet-lagged, and they were still using drugs, and they were still drugged up. So when they finally got there, they were just not feeling it. Slash collapsed at a guitar store and was bedridden for a couple days. And Stephen and Duff got in a fight after Stephen lipped off to Robert John, the photographer, over something that he said. And Duff basically got pissed at him because he had self-funded this this trip to Europe. And now Stephen was being a dick to him. Mm-hmm. The first show in Europe was a total flop. Well, because this was supposed to be three shows at the Marquise, which was a huge venue in Europe. That was supposed to be three nights in a row. Kerrang! was there reporting about it. If you know anything about European music, you know about Kerrang! Yeah. Like, they're yeah, huge. They're, yeah. I remember in middle school, like, Kerrang! putting out a lot of the bands that were very influential yeah. on me. Yeah. And Guns N' Roses had done no favors to themselves during this time. When the tour was announced, a lot of magazines came in and interviewed the guys, and they had made themselves infamous by asking what things European people liked, and if they said dogs, they would say, like, we are out to kill dogs just so that they would become more known in Europe and make more buzz, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And this this followed them through. When they finally arrived in Europe, they were kind of infamous at the time. So when they played their first show, people were throwing beer bottles at them, they were throwing hypodermic needles at them. And the weirdest thing that they would do is they would ball up human snot and throw it at the band. Apparently a very common thing during this time period in Europe. Wouldn't know that. Doesn't do much for me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. In all of my experience with music, the biggest thing I've learned is if something's not going your way, act like it is. Act like every show is the best show you've ever played. And apparently when this was all happening, Axel lost it, got so pissed, was like challenging people to come up and fight him. And Krang was basically like, they blew it. They didn't do well. They didn't receive how the crowd was reacting well. And obviously, Kerrang! covering it helped them because people came. Well, and yeah, the first night Kerrang! said they blew it and it was terrible, but they kept coming back to the next two, and by the third one, they said it was the best thing. They completely fixed everything. Yeah, and as time went on, they just got better and better, and by the time they left Europe, they had won over the entire audience. Yeah, the first show was a very poor turnout, and by the third show, it was pretty much a packed house. And this was actually the first place that they played the cover of knocking on Heaven's Door. Mm -hmm. Axel didn't want to play it at first, but Slash convinced him to play it. And they dedicated the song to Todd Crew, who was passed out backstage from drinking too much. He was pissed because he couldn't get any heroin in Europe. So Axel sarcastically said, this is dedicated to Todd Crew, our roadie, uh, for being passed out. (laughs) 
After the European tour, they had made their way back to the United States and they went to a trade show in New York for new musicians. Didn't play, but... Yeah, R.E.M. played at the show as well as other bands. Slash and Todd Crew, the friend of the band, were hanging out one night. Todd Crew, as we said, was the basis of Jet Boy. At this point, he had gotten fired from them and so he called up Slash and as Slash recalls it, he was already super drunk and he was holding a bottle of what they called toad venom that was orange juice and vodka as they put disguised in a 7-Up bottle, which I don't, don't know how it's disguised. Yeah, it's, not, it's way less disguised. <laughs> it's not it. clear at all. It does, yeah. doesn't look like 7-Up. Yeah, it's just a screwdriver. I'm <laughs> yeah, not sure. I'm sorry, screwdriver. So, yeah, so Todd was basically plastered already and they went out on the town looking to uh, score some smack and they ended up the plasmatics bassist Shozi Funahara. I don't know how to say that. I'm probably saying it wrong. But they met up with him and got heroin from him and then Todd and Slash went and saw Jaws 3D which sounds horrifying and so as Slash recalls it Todd left halfway through to take a phone call with his girlfriend and then passed out in the lobby and of course what do you do after that, go get more heroin. Of course, yeah. Which is what they did. They went back to the hotel, and uh, according to Slash, someone else must have shot Todd up with more because supposedly the amount Slash gave him was not enough to make him OD, but he did, and Slash was able to revive him once, and then... So Slash put him in his shower and yep. revived him, and then tucked him into bed, and... He slipped away again and didn't that wake up. Yeah. yeah, Todd Crew ended up dying of a heroin overdose on July 8th, 1980 at the Milford Plaza in New York. A lot of people blamed Guns N' Roses and Slash specifically for Todd Cruz's overdose. The whole rock community was shocked by what had happened. Yeah, I he mean, recounted going to the funeral and basically... Todd's whole family was putting the whole blame on him, which... And Todd Crew's mother had to call Robert John, the photographer that went with him to London, where they confirmed that he had died. Less than two weeks after Todd Crew's death, their debut album, Appetite for Destruction, came out on, Ju- <laughs> on July 21st, 1987. And much to their surprise, nothing happened when it came out. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the band was kind of expecting this to be this big breakthrough album, but there was so much good music being put out at the time. Aerosmith was just putting out their album after coming back from getting clean. Def Leppard was just coming to the United States, as was Anthrax, War, Heart, and other bands. So, literally, Guns N' Roses just got lost in the noise. Yeah, it just got buried. But ended up on top of all. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. the end, it wasn't until about a year later that their album eventually climbed to the top of the charts. Mm-hmm. A little fun fact about the album Instead of an A-side and a B-side, like most vinyl records came out, it actually was labeled on the album, it was labeled a G-side and an R-side. So it was a little bit of fun, fun little play on G and R. Oh, guns and roses, dude. Like we said, the album didn't do very well when it initially came out. And a big part of this is that no big department store would actually sell their album yeah. because of... The album cover. Exactly, yeah. The explicit album cover that was put out. So. And it wasn't getting radio play either because it wasn't because really radio album, fitting yeah. at the time. Yeah, their one single, Welcome to the Jungle, was too explicit. And MTV wasn't playing it either because the video they had made... It was so, yeah, Yeah, so it was too violent, yeah. And so nobody, I mean, they just weren't getting any kind of traction with any of their stuff. What Geffen did is they tried to think of how to sell more records or how to get this out to more people. And so they decided they were going to do a rebrand of the album cover. 
and they didn't know what to do. An artist at Geffen Records saw the tattoo that Axel had gotten on his forum of the, the Celtic cross with the members of the band. And we said, I love that idea. We're going to do something like that. And Ended so becoming the cover everyone knows today. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it was those five members, their skulls slashed with his top hat, uh, Axel with his sunglasses. They're just, you know, all with their big hair. And I think the drummer, how he was portrayed on Axel's arm wasn't right. Axel's tattoo was not the same as what was on the album cover. So they actually recalled the albums from the big box stores like Walmart and Kmart to put this new cover out. And then the original cover was actually put on an inside slip. They went on a tour with The Cult, who we will talk about, basically sabotaged their whole tour, and Iron Maiden, who they ended up hating. Yeah, that's a whole story in itself. They went on a tour with Motley Crue and their longtime heroes, Aerosmith, in what would become known as the Monsters of Rock Tour, which would ultimately lead in the death of two of their fans at one of their shows. And we will get to that, as well as much more in the next part of Guns N' Roses, here on on in five. <laughs> That's it. We just want to thank everybody for listening to our debut episode. Uh, if it got a little rambly, we're sorry. We're still learning how to do this. We've, it is definitely uh, going to be rough for a while. Yeah, we've all had a decent amount to drink. Um, it is. <sighs> we've been recording for seven hours now. Yeah, I think I've, we started at seven forty-five, and it is currently exactly two oh eight in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so we are we are just trying to figure out what's going on. We, we didn't want to start with a two-part episode but there's just so much into this that even doing two parts is probably not going to do it full justice but we're going to do as much as we can yeah we're going to see if we can get through it in two parts we may get it through it in three parts if that's the case then that's fine at the end of the day what we want to do is we want to give you guys the most in-depth and best product we can we don't want to skimp on any of the details we want to give you guys the product that you are tuning into us instead of anyone else to hear but we still want it to be quite entertaining that's the problem is we got to pack so much in there and we yeah. gotta make it funny and we gotta make it out for you guys absolutely absolutely freaking and for me. it is time for plugs I have nothing okay okay <laughs> it's, good to it's know. nothing yet so. I mean if you, if you want nothing you just looked at this boy I have nothing <laughs> I have nothing going on. I have nothing. I'm just... Uh, yeah. No one has anything. I do want to say I've been drinking a beer all night called Pompeii by Toppling Goliath here in Decorah, Iowa. No, We're not false. here, yeah, but I mean, it is it's in Iowa. here, yeah. I'm, at, I'm just as a state. Delicious IPAs. If you like IPAs, they have the best. Um, Delicious, Cora. Yeah. What have, I mean, what have you been drinking, Austin? I have been having an assortment. I had some Surly Heat Slayer, which okay. is a nice Kolsch-style beer. Highly recommend if you like an easy drinker. I have also been drinking Sierra Nevada hazy little thing and that is a hazy IPA with a nice citrus blend in it mm, very nice yes. Ethan I was drinking cognac the whole time he's a Michelob Ultra in his head right now cognac they're full of shit I was drinking <laughs> cognac alright so we're gonna wrap it up there we will talk to you guys next time on the next episode of On in 5 thank you so much for listening Me!